0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Yes, this is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. And today we're going to be talking to Former North Melbourne champion, Corey McKernan. Uh, Corey, welcome. How are you going, mate? All good? Very good. bit colder and a bit wetter over here than you are over there, but apart from that, all all good, mate. All right, so, mate, um, you had a great career, obviously two premierships at North Melbourne, but let's go all the way back to the start in Melbourne's western suburbs. And when we talk about western suburbs and you come from Perth, western suburbs in Perth means a completely different thing to western suburbs in Melbourne. So tell us about growing up in the western suburbs of Melbourne
2: more probably sort of northern suburbs, where like it wasn't that far from Tullamarine. There's a place out there called Gladstone Park, but even though I lived in Gladstone Park, I actually played on the junior footy from when I was five up up until I was about 12. I played at West Minnows, which if there's those Dane Swan fans out there, they're the same junior club that Swanee and I are both from West Minnows, so it's more probably northern, a bit northwest, I think, where where we're located, but yeah, not far from
1: Tullamarine. Were you always a big kid, or did you shoot up at some stage in your teenage years?
2: No, uh, yeah, I've seen some sort of past photos when I was at West Meadows where I don't think I was overly tall. It's probably only once you really start to get to 16, 17 where you really start to shoot up. Like, I knew that I was a little bit taller, but not. it never felt like I was a crazy amount taller, if that makes sense. But yeah, there were some interesting photos when I look back at West Meadows where it looked like in a couple of those team photos I, I was definitely the bottom age kid and maybe the other kids were a couple of years older than me.
1: Describe yourself as a junior footballer.
2: Yeah, well, my journey was interesting like I, I don't know what you'd describe it as because I played footy from when I was five years old till I was about 12 and then I sort of gave up playing footy from when I was 13 till I was about 17 so I wouldn't have thought I had the usual journey into the AFL that I'd come through all the junior programs and all those pathways that yeah a lot of people go through like mine was mine was a little bit unique that yeah I played from five to twelve thirteen to seventeen I really just played, I played a lot of golf during that time from when I was 13 to 17 and it was only once I got to 17 through playing a lot of school footy in North Melbourne looked after our particular zone where we played in Glaston Park High School. That In the end it was, uh, yeah, it was Dennis Pagan's persistence that that got me down to the kangaroos.
1: So were you playing a lot of golf because that was the career path you were choosing? Describe yourself as a golfer.
2: I don't think at that stage you're not thinking a career every I'd imagine teenager that takes up the game of golf and, you know what I mean, you have visions that you watch the US Masters and all those big golf tournaments on TV and, and probably the reason why I took up golf at that age, Greg Norman was obviously huge during that time and the way he represented Australia and played the game of golf had really ensured that there was a real steady star production line of great golfers
1: that came out of Australia. So what courses did you play on? Because Melbourne is absolutely famous for its courses, particularly down on the Sandbelt there.
2: Yeah, well, I was lucky enough, even though, even though I grew up playing all my Junior Golf at Tullamarine, which I'd never trade, by the way, Like even though it's not the world's greatest golf course, but the one thing with Tullamarine, it really taught you how to play a vast array of shots. And it, being next to the airport, it was always pretty windy. So you really had to learn how to hit, like I said, a, a vast array of shots. So you really had to learn how to play in the wind and whether it was hitting into the wind to try and keep the ball down or even downwind, you know, I learning how to bump and run shots up up onto the green. So Yeah, so as much as I grew up at Tullamoree, one thing that was good at North Melbourne around that time, I know Ron Casey was involved with Channel 7, and he had a relationship with uh, Huntingdale, so he managed to get me into Huntingdale, I think, during my footy career, which was actually really good. I mean, as you mentioned, I I know I'm a little bit biased because I'm from Victoria, and even though I've traveled all over the world, and played a lot of different golf courses, the golf courses in Victoria are close to the best golf courses on the planet, and you're very lucky that they're in our own backyard. Like when someone says, What's your favourite? It's pretty hard to pick when you've got Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Yarra Yarra, Metropolitan, Huntingdale. You know, what I mean, and they're just the ones on the actual sandbelt. But then you go down the Mornington Peninsula and, and you've got courses down there. So even though the weather can. At different times, it's not the best in Victoria, but the one thing they do have nailed, they do have the uh, basically a lot of the world's greatest golf courses.
1: Absolutely. Royal Melbourne, of course, famous, but uh, I covered an Australian Open at Metropolitan. That was a magnificent course. And the one you talked about, Huntingdale, was, of course, the site of the Australian Masters, which became such a big tournament in Australia through the, through the late 80s and, and 90s. What brought you back to football, Corey?
2: Well, it was a choice that was never, it was sort of, in some ways, wasn't my own because it might have been about round six or seven, 1991. And, and even that preceding pre season, Dennis became very famous for having 50, 60 kids that would turn up for the under 19s at North Melbourne. Um, there were a lot of people that used to turn up. I think I went a couple of times and didn't really like the whole caper that it was football. But what had happened is during those first few weeks of uh, 1991, I was playing school football and was probably playing pretty well at a school level. And as I mentioned, North Melbourne ran those zones. It was Dennis Pagan would actually come out to my house in Gladstone Park. And for those that remember out there, remember the old... Holden Cameras. I remember Dennis Pagan had a, not a real flash uh, silver Holden Camera, but whenever I'd see it coming down the court in Gladstone Park, I'd go and hide in my bedroom and tell <laughs> Mum to say I wasn't there. And then um, it was look, and it was only after really a weak moment. And and everyone at North Melbourne mentioned you, they actually said to me when I did eventually go to training on the Thursday night, Dennis made a rule. He goes, look, he goes, don't don't come and train on Tuesday. All I want you to do is come and come and train on the Thursday he goes you get through that and he goes i'll play you uh, in the other 19s on the saturday and, and i remember lance williams who was dennis's famous long-time assistant i remember lance even saying to me one of my first meetings with lance like lance would go on to be his assistant for many many years at north albinger during the premierships and even lance come up to me he said he must like you he, he goes he doesn't mo- break that rule for anyone so i went down on the saturday and, and again i I was really more playing out of, well, I just want to get this bloke off my back. Like I I mean, I I wasn't really that serious about playing. Well, I remember the first quarter I kicked five and then I ended up kicking six more. So I kicked 11 goals for the game. And I remember one thing that was Dennis eternally right after that game when he said, he goes, son, he goes, you probably won't kick 11 goals ever again. And guess what? He was right. (laughs) (laughs) Who was that against? Uh, against St Kilda. And then what happened, I sort of played the remainder of that year in, in the other 19s. I think I might have even got a reserves game in Sydney. But what happened, I actually injured my knee and missed a few weeks. But again, this also spoke volumes. And you know, I, mean, I had Dennis to actually thank for this. But I think I hurt my knee late in the year playing in the reserves in Sydney and then I came back and I'd obviously hurt my knee. And I didn't play another game until he put me back in for the grand final for the under-19s. And again, for that, I'm eternally grateful to be able to say that we played in the last under-19 grand final ever. And, and look, in that team, when I rattle off the names, you go, gee, any wonder that you, you won the under-19s grand final. You had myself, Glenn Archer, Damian Hardwick, Brad Scholl, Stuart Anderson... There are a couple of guys that never really went on to play footy, but they were really dominant players in that team. There was Eric Lissenden and Johnny McNamara. and they were just. You know, I mean, it was it was an unbelievable uh, football factory that under-19s. That yeah, you had our team. That, that that was the last under-19 premiership ever. But you weren't to know that maybe five years later, that that under-19 factory that it produced so many great under-19s players that formed the nucleus of the the 1996 premiership.
1: We'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about Corey breaking into the senior team at North Melbourne. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. This
1: is Inspiring Sports Story, thanks to Bauer and O'Day, and we're talking to Corey McKernan, the former champion, North Melbourne Ruckman. Corey, you've played in the under 90s premiership, the last under 9 premiership ever. Your graduation into senior footy, tell us about that.
2: Look, it was probably those first few years, even though North Melbourne had the first... Pick of the under 19s, even though that was finishing up, they were able to pick, I think, eight to ten players that were automatically able to go onto their senior list. And I'd probably say those first two years, I wasn't really that serious about playing footy, but it might have been maybe the late 1992 that I probably then started to think well hang on I'm actually not too bad at this game and then that's where I really sort of started to knuckle down and really start to uh, prepare properly from a football perspective and yeah like it was interesting I went into 1993 I went from 86 kilos up to 101 kilos in the pre-season but then Australia Day 1993 I actually ruptured my appendix and I sort of lost all the weight within five days. You know, I mean, I got incredibly sick, and it took me a while to recover after that. I only played one game in 1993. But the other thing, and when I did come back, like I was emergency, I think ten or twelve times in 1993. But then, what I did going into 1994, I just made up my mind. And it's a lesson, that I think, for a lot of young players out there that rather than moan that you're not getting a game and you're blaming other people, I just went, I'll take responsibility. I'll play as well as I can, and I'll make it their problem. You know what I mean? So that was sort of the journey for those first few years in order to, to, to basically get a, a regular spot in the seniors.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the size you put on. I actually remember talking to Dennis Pagan in the preseason of 1994, and I asked him, about the two players that uh, he thought had been standouts of pre-season. The two players he mentioned were yourself and Peter Mann, and it was because of the shape you were in, but the size you have been able to, to put on. Did that sort of give you great confidence? Because 1993 was a real breakout year for North Melbourne, wasn't it? You sort of went from a club being in the doldrums a little bit at a senior level to almost like the Cinderella story of the season under Dennis.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. As you said, you know, I mean, North were really on the up. But that was the famous... Yeah, pre-season where Dennis, he took over in... Uh, I think he took over in January and February, where I think after North Island had been beaten, it's amazing the turnaround when you think back at it. And, put, and Imagine in today's football that a team got beaten by 148 points, I think, in the pre-season, and then basically came back to really be like a pretty dominant team during 1993. But then that that in turn, they already had Alex Hyschenko, Wayne Carey and John Longline, so... It made it pretty hard to break into that team. But as I mentioned, my, my mentality going into the following year, 1994, I just went, well, I'll play that well and I'll make it your problem. If you have to drop other players, I don't, I don't really care. But I'll just take care of my own destiny and play as well as I can.
1: Did you surprise yourself with how well you played in 1994? You were, you were good from the get-go in 1994. Three goals, 12 disposals, first up against St Kilda in round two.
2: Yeah, look, it probably also helped. I played, had a taste of it in 1993. Even though the ruptured appendix had set me back, it was it was probably not such a bad thing just to like, have that year to make you hungry and especially having the setback. I think setbacks are good if you use them in the right way. And I think when you combine it with the setback, but then also being made emergency a dozen times, I think it made me more ready to be able to play senior football and not to tick the box that I was playing a game, but I I knew that once I was in there, I was a hell of a lot more comfortable from the get-go, I think, because I'd had that experience the year before and I'd had such a really big pre-season in 1994 that I was really ready to go by then. So when you say, was I surprised, well... Well, I, I, I didn't really know what sort of limit or what level I was capable of anyway. Because remember, I, I, you know, I mean, really for me, I'd only started playing footy again when I was 17 or 18. And by the time you're, you're 19, 20, you're in the your senior team at North Melbourne. But again, like I think me as a player, my mindset was always, even though you're a big player, I always tried to think, well, I'm going to do. Every facet of the game well, in order to play regular senior footy and to be a really good player, like there's no use. It's probably what I get critical with Ruckman now. Like, don't just be a, a tap ruckman. Like everyone can do that. Like a, a lot of people can do that. But if you really want to make yourself a good player, well, not only win the taps, win the ball around the ground, and when you can go forward, be able to market and kick a goal. And when we look at the really good Ruckman over the journey that have done that. Like Max Gorn's been able to do that. Dean Cox was obviously really good at that. And that was probably my mindset too. It was also a part of your mindset, I think, to go, I don't, I don't want to be a ruck and the. okay, I play in the ruck and then you put me on the bench. I, I, that's what I always used to say when I was doing some of the ruck coaching with Hamish McIntosh and Todd Goldstein. and say, well, if you don't want to sit on the bench, make yourself valuable, go forward. And mark the ball overhead and kick goals. And that was probably a bit of my mindset from the get go that I just wanted to be good at all facets of the game because you wanted to be, be able to play every minute of every game.
1: Round 21, you come to Perth, you play West Coast at the Wacker, you're the hot favourite for the Rising Star Award. You make a desperate lunging tackle on Jason Ball, I think it was. Trip him over, yeah. it's a hand trip. It wouldn't even be, it might be a free kick these days. It costs you the Rising Star Award. What do you remember about that?
2: Well, it's it's not even a free kick nowadays. They actually swapped it the year in the preseason, the year like six months later. So it's not only now would it be a fifty metre penalty. They, they at the time so that happened in nineteen ninety four. But yeah, the the next preseason they they swapped it and made the rule a fifty metre penalty six months later. So I don't know. Like I again with things like that. I when you know you're not going to win it for a hell of a long time. Yeah, never never really bothered me. I remember at the time Jared Healy I think was on the voting panel and I remember I ran into him at the end of the year and he said look if you were in it he goes you would have won it by a mile so I think that's the only bit that was um, it was good to hear to know that you know and the people on the voting panel knew that if I had of been eligible I would have I would have won it by a mile.
1: You played in two epic finals that year in the qualifying final out at um, Waverley Park which was a draw at the end of. Uh, Um, I guess, regular time and had to go into extra time. And then, of course, the preliminary final um, against Geelong. What do you remember about those games?
2: Oh, they were just epic finals. Um, I think for me... Because I like, I had a really good experience early in the year when I managed to play well against Collingwood in a Friday night game at the MCG in front of a big crowd. So going even into that first final against Hawthorne, it was being able to draw on some of those experiences of even that year where you played in big Friday night games. And we were very fortunate in North Melbourne that we got to play in a lot of Friday night games and there were some big ones in 1994. Yeah, that was also being a part of history in that game. It was the first drawn final ever and the first time well, it wasn't the first drawn final ever because Cullingham and the Eagles did the first drawn final ever, but that was the first situation where, if it was a draw, you played five minutes of extra time either way. And I know in that game, I did play really well in the final, might have kicked two or three goals in the in the final and took some good marks and really contributed. But Wayne Carey, I think he played one of his best games that day. Effectively, he had a, a torn soleus and. I think he had 32 possessions and took 14 marks and centre a half forward. So, yeah, that was... And, and the way that the finals worked, I think we won that first one. We had a week off. We, we went into the prelim and then that was the famous uh, Gary Ablett mark after the siren. And it was one of the, one of the few times uh, as a collective I've never seen in any game of football ever since then. Um, I've never been in a game where I've seen so many people upset. And I think at that time, you're not to know is that you're never to know when the opportunity is going to come again. But thankfully for us, for us, we actually got to do it seven times in a row.
1: Yeah, it, was a, it felt like 1993 North felt like a Cinderella team. Um, and obviously when West Coast, who were the reigning premiers, went out and beat you at Waverley in an elimination final, you felt like, okay, they've had a good year. They'll go onwards and upwards from here. It it almost felt like you were probably going to be the stronger opponent for West Coast in 1994 than Geelong, and uh, and probably got tipped out um, a week early. Was that the feeling amongst the group?
2: Oh look, it would have been a really would have been a great battle. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, who knows? It, it, like, I, I suppose, yeah, it, it would have been a really interesting battle. Like, and again, it, there were different games that North Melbourne played West Coast that would have been the Kerry-Jakovic duel to settle them all, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, if you had that in a grand final and whoever got the points in that one could always point to the fact that... And you know what? What would usually happen that if there was a lot of times where, where Jakovic actually played really well in those games and we would actually win. So it was about what, what I would do or what Glen Archer would do or the other players would do, you would find that when Wayne usually played well in some of those games that North usually got beaten so it was it was quite an interesting situation but those battles I remember saying to people I might have even said that to you when we had a chat like when we come to Perth and as everyone on Perth knows like when you arrive into the airport you've got to go down those uh, the escalators to, to go to baggage claim and as soon as you open up the doors it'll be like yeah I mean I, I can only imagine what a prize fight would be because especially when we flying in during the 90s and the whole talk was about Kerry and Djokovic. We just felt like we were just we were extras in the movie.
1: We'll take a break there. We'll come back. We'll talk about more finals disappointment than the two flags. We're talking to Corey McKernan. This is Inspiring Sports Stories, thanks to Bauer and Doday. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
0: This is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to former North Melbourne champion Corey McKernan. Corey, out in the preliminary finals in 1994, it felt like North were one of the teams to beat in 1995 and you go out at the same stage of competition how disappointing was that
2: oh look it was disappointing but i think when you look back uh with hindsight I, I think i'm a big subscriber that you you nearly have to pay your dues um in order to to get where you want to go i think it's very rare that teams come into the finals and win their win the premiership on their first time round that's incredibly incredibly rare but i think us losing in '94 the way we did, and and then even '95. I don't think, even though we were a better team in '95, we're never going to beat that Carlton team in 1995 with the way that they were going. Um, so really going into 1996, I think it it just gives you that extra sting in your tail going into '96 that we nothing was ever going to stop us for that entire year and. You just made sure, like, and again, you also knew you had a rough idea about the things that you should be doing in order to get to that next level.
1: 1996, you have 423 disposals in 24 games. You kicked 33 goals. You were uh, basically should have been an equal Brownlow medalist, but for another suspension. Um, Is that your best season in football?
2: Um, it was, look, it was the best season from the point of view, um, I know you're looking at the stats and things like that, but I think, um, and again, it's a, it's a huge lesson learned like, many years later. If I said, it was the most enjoyable season because if you talk about like, your, your why, like why you were doing it, and in the end, and that's what drove me through, whether it was getting over my knee grand final week or getting over, um, you know, I mean, obviously you had the Brownlow happen grand final week. That my whole why for 1996 was about winning a premiership in the day, and for Lades and Craig Scholl and you know, I mean Ian Fairley and people have been at Darren Crocker and people people have been at North Melbourne forever. So it was that's why it was the most enjoyable season because of that. Like I know there's a byproduct of it that yeah you have a great individual season, you win the MVP, and but I think that also that having that powerful why that that also helped me. Um, like as a twenty really as a twenty two year old, if I said it, it makes me laugh nowadays when they talk about Ruckman being young. Well, Maddie Capuano and I were I was twenty two and Maddie Capuano was twenty one. And you're playing in the AFL grand final I and mean, then I had the week that I had thrown at me with the Brownlow medal, on my knee and everything that was going on and still come out in the grand final, but I trace it back to having that real really powerful why which was about wanting to win a medal for all my mates that I've mentioned.
1: What do you remember about the grand final against Sydney?
2: There are certain things that you remember. Like I I remember Wayne Carey and I got stuck in the banner. Um, if anyone wants something to laugh at, go back and look at the footage of the 96 grand final. And you know we're going to be in trouble when David King kicks the ball at the banner and the, the ball hits the banner and then you see the ball drop like a pigeon hitting a brick wall. Um, <laughs> so then I remember we got stuck in the banner, but... No, nah, look, the, from a football point of view, I know that I'd hurt my knee. Oh, I got a, I got a really big knock on my knee just before quarter time. I remember our doctor, Harry Unlick and Roger Moore and Gordon McDonald, our physios, they come out, and they were obviously fearing the worst, but it was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to me. That effectively, I went, well, hang on, if that's the worst it's going to be, I'm actually going to be all right here. And for those that have been in that situation, when you have something that really... It tests your confidence, but then you go, hang on, well, again, if that's the worst it's going to be, I'm going to be off and the way. And it was quite interesting. It was right on quarter time and Dennis Pagan come storming out and he uh, gave us some pretty direct feedback to me and Harry. And we actually had to assure him and say, listen, no, that's good. I'm, I'm good to go. And I don't know, my favourite, probably my favourite memory is um, there's a centre bounce about two minutes before half-time and I've mentioned this to a few people. It's probably my favourite passage of play in football that I can still watch now and get goosebumps about it. And the, and the, and the cool thing is, it's not a it's not a possession or a mark or a goal that I've kicked. It's actually just me from a centre bounce. I hit it. I charge forward. I think Glenn Archer knocks it up in the air. And then I smash it forward about 30 metres, and then Glenn Freeborn gets it and kicks his third goal of the quarter. That it was such an enormous moment that at that time. I knew that not only was I back, but I knew that we were well and surely back. Because we'd been tested by Sydney up until then, but I, I sort of, when you look back in, in hindsight now, that passage of play, you just went, well, hang on, we, we, we're not going to be beaten in this grand final now. We've got our mojo back and we're off and away.
1: What was the feeling in the rooms after that game?
2: Uh, I think, look, they're vastly different feelings, like between 1999 and '96. I think... It really is that euphoric feeling. I think because all of it's brand new, you don't know how you're meant to behave, you don't know how you're meant to be acting, you're trying to make sure that you're going to take it all in. But no one, I think your first time around, no one ever really gets to take it in properly. I know everyone tells you. Yeah. The one thing that um, I suppose I've, I look on it at Envy now that I wish we'd been able to do, that one of the, I don't know which team, it might have been Hawthorne were the ones that started this. And when I saw, I think it was was it Hawthorn in 2008? Might have been the first team ever that went out to the MCG after the game, after everyone had gone, and just to stand in the middle of the the MCG just with your teammates. I think that's the one moment um, I wish that we had been able to do that. That would have been when I see some of those teams do that now. That's something that I'm really jealous of. Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm forever grateful that we won it. But it just would have been really cool to do something like that, just with the players that played. Go out in the middle of the ground. You've got a beer in your hand. You probably still got your footy jumper on. There's no one left in the MCG, and you know, I mean, it'd be great where you're all going to say a few words about what it means to you to to win a premiership.
1: 1998, you lose one. You kick two eleven in the second quarter. I think and Adelaide overrun you. Did that set you up for 1999? You felt like a really, uh, I guess, battle hardened group in 1999.
2: Yeah, I don't know. And again, there's different ways you can sort of look at 1999. I know. Yeah, we we probably did miss a huge learning opportunity. I know that we never. And again, you're talking, you're looking in looking at it through today's eyes. But was it at all possible in 1998? And what I say is, we never we never did a review about the 1998 grand final. It was I think in today, if you're able to do that today and, and use it as a real learning tool um but we a lot of us never even I, I gather you could talk to a lot of players and that no one would have even watched that grand final but I don't know the biggest thing when you kick two goals 11 in the second quarter and you're playing against another team that does obviously deserve to be because they're there in the grand final um we just didn't put them away so but again going into 1999 everyone um, I know different people mentioned about Essendon and, and Carlton beat Essendon in the prelim final, but um, yeah, Dennis, Dennis Hagan has a famous saying that if you only had whistles, you would be your uncle. So if uh, if all the Essendon supporters thought that they were going to beat us in the grand final, well, no one will ever know, will they?
1: They won't ever know. I, I still felt that you guys were the team to beat in 1999. I must admit that was just me from where I was sitting, and obviously I'm sitting on the other side of the fence. Um, I do remember going to that game, that preliminary final, the Carlton-Essendon game, and thinking, oh, well, Essendon beats them, then we have a great grand final, and uh, obviously it didn't pan out that way. Tell us about your own year in '99.
2: Yeah, it was, a little bit, it was a little bit different because Maddie Catuana was back, and... Um, Yeah, John Longmire obviously had his issues with injury, but it was really I played maybe a lot more forward in 1999, and especially the way that we played. Wayne and I were the two best contested mark players in the competition. So um, to be able to be down there deep forward with him and I working in tandem, I think I don't know how many goals I kicked. I might have kicked around 40 goals for the year, and then Wayne. Kicking eighty, so you've got two players kicking one hundred and twenty goals. It does make a, a a big difference, but also him and I. When you're leading the contested mark players in the competition, it, you know, I mean it's it's a pretty the way that we play, um, getting the ball in there quickly and creating a contest. If we didn't mark it, bringing it to ground, that you know when you got the likes of Brent Harvey, Peter Bell, you know, I mean at your feet, it, um, you know what I mean, and Shannon Grant and Adam Simpson, all these guys. Um, It definitely, it obviously, hopefully made their job a lot easier
1: too. We'll take a break there and we'll come back and we'll talk about the end of Corey's time at North Melbourne and Carlton afterwards and obviously his life after football and the great work he's doing in the community. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are
0: everything. is Inspiring Sports Stories with Mark Duffield on SEM. Thanks to Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: This is Inspiring Sports Stories thanks to Bower and O'Day. We're talking to Corey McKernan, of course, former champion, North Melbourne Ruckman, also a best and fairest winner at Carlton. Corey, you win the flag in 1999. Dennis Pagan... We've talked, uh, you and I, in the past about his relentless nature and his relentless pursuit of excellence. It, it can wear people out. When did it start to wear you out a little bit?
2: Um, I would even say, even in the, the year we won the flag, I was probably, even in 1999, I, I remember I did sign my contract before the final series started in 1999. And I don't know, like I was probably, yeah, beginning to get worn down a little bit by it all. That said, as I mentioned, yeah, it was great in terms of uh, feeling the success that we had and everything like that. But there was also the enjoyment factor of enjoying your football and it's it's a balance. I know some people would say, oh, well, you're winning, so you should be happy. Well, there's a lot more layers to it than just that. And yeah, I think I would have had yeah, the year 2000 and 2001. And then by the end of 2001, I sort of made up my mind that, um, yeah, it wasn't due to anything else about us not getting the best out of one another. i would made a decision that I obviously wanted to move to Carlton.
1: You were still kicking goals, weren't you? You kicked 40 goals in 2000, 38 goals in 2001. Um, so you were still a contributor to the team uh, by any reasonable estimation. But uh, was it just a case you needed to rediscover love of the game?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it was just that in, enjoyment factor. That again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it was, look, it was probably just came down to the environment that Dennis created. That I, you know, I mean, I felt like I wanted a different environment, and that's why I made my mind up that I was going to go somewhere different. And then, yeah, obviously, then did end up at Carlton.
1: Um- was it fun at the Blues? Because obviously it was a tough time for the club at that particular time. There was the salary cap saga unfolding, and uh, um, they were starting to to run out of troops.
2: Well, the first year, like I, I started off, um, yeah, I didn't get off to the best start of uh, um, didn't get off to the best start of all time, but it was only. Yeah, I think it got to about round five or six that I really then turned it around in that in that first year at Carlton, and then once I did, um, I turned it around like pretty spectacular in the end. That ended up winning the Carlton Best and fairest, and had a, like a, even though we didn't have a great year, but I felt like I'd sort of yeah really progressed forward, and and I was in a really good space, and was really looking forward to the the following year, and then um, yeah, I remember in that September of that year, I remember Jason McCartney, I'm really good mates with, Jason started sending me text messages saying that uh, there's a rumour going around that Dennis is actually going to come and coach Carlton, which I wasn't really that keen on, by the way. (laughs) And um, I remember when I flew back in, I was in New Zealand, and it was when I landed at Tullamarine Airport, and I got my passport out, and I was going to go up to the the counter, or I had to go up to the counter, and then Obviously, I mean, when you go through the airport security, not have your phones on, so I had no idea, like, in terms of any updates or uh, what was happening from a coaching situation. When I walked up to the guy at the airport, he looked at me, looked at my passport, and he said, "Uh, Yep, you'll be happy with your new coach. So then that's how I found out that Dennis was going to come to Carlton. And I don't know, like, it's, uh, yeah, I, I I didn't know what to say. Like, I, I had the meetings with Dennis. I, I sort of pleaded my case about why I thought all the things that I'd done uh, in terms of the reasons why I thought I'd won the best and fairest that year. And then, um, yeah, I knew pretty quickly that it was it was sort of reverting back to the same old feelings. And yeah, but look, that said, I, I've, I've, got a, I've got a really good relationship with Dennis now. And, and one thing, like I'm maybe, I'm really grateful there have been a lot of players that have maybe come out and potted Dennis like, you know, I mean, his old school approach and everything like that. I, I don't have an issue with that, but it was just me with Dennis and that's the best way I can sum it up. That we, I, I just wasn't getting the best out of myself and um, that, that meant that, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong that we would have great, we did great things together, but, when it When it came to me getting the best out of myself, I, I just didn't thrive in that environment.
1: It's a tough environment, too, isn't it? I mean this is the thing that people when people judge these relationships from the outside, it it is an absolutely brutal environment, it it puts everyone in the red zone. As uh, as uh, John Travolta might have said to Samuel Jackson in Pulp Fiction, everyone in the AFL is in the red zone. Um, they're all under pressure. You're all, um, I guess, getting comfortable being uncomfortable, um, and it does stretch these things to the absolute limit.
2: Yeah, it does. Like, but look, the other thing, and then when you see like a lot of the great, like even the teams that have been successful over the last few years, and the ones that spring to mind when I see, like even the environment that when Richmond were winning those flags and yeah, I mean, no one nearly criticised for laughing too much when they're out on the ground and, and even calling it now at different times. But, yeah, I mean, when you see those sorts of environments, so at the end of the day, I know there's a time to work, and we, but it's like whether you're playing football or your job or even what you're doing now, if it's not fun, well, then don't do it. You know what I mean? If you can't have fun, and that's where you, I think getting that balance, I, I, again, there's, Never, never jealous about um, what the players do nowadays, but when I, when I see those sorts of environments that they've created, I, I reckon in those environments that I see with the Collingwoods and the Richmonds, I would have really thrived in.
1: It just makes sense, doesn't it, really? Like, if you're going to do it, make sure you enjoy it, um, which brings us into the, the part of your life after footy. You retire after 237 games. You've had, by any measure, a, a, a truly great career, um, and you go out as a as a 30-year-old. Tell us about Walk With Me and, and why you established that.
2: Yeah, well, the, the short version is, um yeah, I, I suppose when the pandemic started, I saw a headline in the Australian newspaper that the, the suicide toll was going to outstrip the coronavirus toll. And um, being that you i know, you know, and everyone knows, or well, hopefully everyone out there has heard of Wayne Swoss and is a Premiership teammate at North Melbourne. But Wayne's been doing really great things uh, in the mental health space. He'd, unbeknownst to us during the 90s, he'd been going through a significant uh, mental health battle, which we had no idea about. But we, well, obviously, with my relationship with Wayne, I saw that headline in the Australian newspaper. Then I come up with the idea, um, and again, we've changed since then. But at that at that time during the pandemic, I come up with the idea all to walk with me, and all all it was initially is that um, obviously we all became really good at Zoom. I would then um, at seven o'clock and in, in the morning, I would take people for a walk, and a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And it was really just to be able to get people moving and talk about ideas, how, how they could look after themselves and be proactive with their mental and physical fitness. Um, I think during the, uh, during the COVID lockdowns, all the politicians were fantastic at telling us everything that we couldn't do, but I wanted to create something where we could share ideas about everything that you could do. Um, so we then had to change a little bit once the pandemic finished. We don't do the Zoom walks anymore. Um, but I had to, the, the, the vision that we've actually come up with now. It's uh, elite athletes giving back to the community by providing tools on physical and mental fitness, and what that means. I've got a couple of ambassadors. I've got Barry Hall and I've got Shawnee Layton and Billy Moore up here in Queensland. And for example, if I took Barry out um, to a, a football club, he'd take training. Shawnee, she'd take the netball. We come in afterwards, and we get to talk about. The pillars about how people can be proactive and look after their mental and physical fitness and then we'd leave that club with their own app so then we've got an ongoing connection with them moving forward so uh, for something that I just started off to to help people during the pandemic it's it's amazing to see what it's actually now grown into
1: do you still follow the football very closely Corey and 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 if so what do you how do you feel about the game these days
2: yeah, I probably always look forward. I, I think this year has actually been one of the best years that I've been able to watch a lot more footy. Um, it's probably one area that, uh, other than the umpiring, which um, I don't know, we always get frustrated by the umpiring. But again, they're only umpiring what they're told, so I do feel for, um, I do feel uh, for the umpires. But in, in in when you look at it, this year, I think this year has been the first year in a long time. Usually. I struggle to watch a lot of the home and away footy. Um, that I really do look forward to the finals, but I've really felt like this year there's been a lot of home and away games that have had like they've been really great games to watch. Um, I think this year we've we've had a cracking season. But again, I, I'm just going to be intrigued to see. I think the the deliberate out of bounds is the one that I really pull my hair out about. I think every footy fan out there does. Like I just don't think. Um, yeah, I, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see which way we go with that over the coming seasons because I think it's grossly unfair that you can kick a ball into the fore line and that happens to dribble out of bounds and that's seen as attacking. But if you're a defender, it, it actually does take a fair bit of skill to kick a ball out along the line and not make it go out. But if it happens to bounce out by accident, then it's deliberate. I just... Ones like that... Um, I'm just, i just—I don't want to see someone lose the grand final for for really silly things like that. But that said, looking forward to the the final series, even though the Kangas aren't in it, and I'm sure a lot of people in WA, there's no Eagles in it. But um, I think it'll be an ama- i think it'll be a really amazing final series this year.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think the, the, the style of footy is great. Uh, you're absolutely right about the insufficient intent rule. The fact that it's policed a certain way in some areas of the ground and a completely different way in other areas of the ground is a complete inconsistency about the game and one of the vagaries um, about the game. Corey, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's also uh, been fantastic to see the work that you've been doing since you, um, you've you you've stopped playing and long may that continue. It, 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 it deals with a really important aspect of life, and I think uh, um, people will benefit greatly from their associations with you going forward. Um, thanks so much for your time today. No, not a problem. Thanks for having me. This is Inspiring Sports Stories. Thanks to Barrett and O'Day, and we've been talking to North Melbourne great Corey McKernan. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.